0: The little updates from the kids right before they go off to Sunday school is always the cutest. We are in a series on Ephesians. We're towards the tail end of the book of Ephesians. So if you're just joining us, this is a really, really short book. It's only six chapters, but it kind of gives a very good overview of what it means. Um, how do we understand what it means to be a Christian and to respond to God's love and live as Christians who are in Jesus? And this is a point in the book where... Um, The Spirit, through the Apostle, one of the early church leaders, Paul, is writing to this church, and he's saying, finally, he's kind of coming to the end of the letter, and he wants them to understand, and he wants to prepare them for the road ahead as a community. And so, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, finally, so I've said a lot of stuff about what God's done for us, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And what does it mean to follow Jesus in different relationships and different contexts? And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the, which is the word of God. Last week we talked about a number of different causal factors for the hardships in our lives. And I did that to say it would be a mistake to read this passage and infer that all of the hardships that we face are simply because of evil or demonic forces at play in our life. We talked about how there can be moral causes for the hardships or suffering that we go through. There could be physical ones, could be relational, could be psychological. One that I didn't mention last week, but I think is important that the Bible does speak to, is that sometimes the hardships that we find ourselves walking through, the difficulties that we experience in life, the opposition, is Something that God has strategically allowed into our lives for a purpose. Sometimes hardships in our lives are because God wants to train us. The biblical word is testing, but that word testing in the Bible doesn't, isn't like a, we think of like a, a, a test where you're trying to score. It's a, God is, is training you. He's preparing you for something. He's refining you. In Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it's commenting, this is the nation of Israel, come, they've come into the land, but some of those earlier generations who were part of Joshua's generation who had to fight against these nations, they've died out, and it says, these nations, these are the nations the Lord left in the land to test all of the Israelites who had not experienced any war with, uh, in Canaan. And the text says, God did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had, not, who had no previous battle experience. So every generation of Israel, God leaves just enough of a remnant of the enemy nations in the land so that every successive generation has to experience some level of opposition that forces them to learn warfare. And that's an important lesson carrying out through the rest of the Bible. Sometimes the struggles and the hardships that we face are God's way of teaching us warfare, teaching us how to fight. Sometimes God permits resistance and opposition in our lives because we need to be tested. We need to be formed. We need to, be, we need to gain battle experience. That's why James, in the onset of his letter to the churches, he says, "...consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds." Because there are certain things you can only learn on the battlefield. And so when times of testing or hardship come, our first reaction should be to say, this might be hard, I might not like this, this might not be my preference, but I can also be excited because I know God's going to do something powerful in me through this time. This is going to have a greater purpose in my life. So I can already be anticipating God using this And so in a strange way, I can be excited. I can be joyful. Because I'm going to be tested and refined and maybe even forced to grow in a way in my faith in this context that I wouldn't have otherwise. Comfort zones are rarely the environment of transformation. It's usually fighting on the battleground that we learn to trust in God. Now I want to be very, very clear. I do not believe God is the author of evil. I would never say that all things that come into our lives um, are God's strategic, are, are placed there by God. All things in our lives, Romans 8:28 says, are used by God for our good, but God is not the author of evil. But the Bible is clear that He will allow certain hardships so that we learn how to do warfare, individually in our friendships in our marriages, in our families, as a church. And that's why we talked about for the last two weeks that ease and comfort are not the norm for the Christian life. But if you presume that they are, you're going to feel betrayed by God. Because you'll say, this is I was signing up for ease and comfort. But hopefully God, in a gentle way, by His Spirit, would say, I don't know where you got that idea from. From start to finish, I've been... Showing my people that I'm preparing you for war, and so to follow me, to commit to me, means to commit to a life of warfare, and that's what Paul wants to impress upon the Galatian church. In Gal- or, sorry, in uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians six, the, one of the refrains that gets repeated throughout the passage is standing or standing firm. And today, I want to look at what does it mean to stand firm. We can talk about life as warfare and a battle, but how do, how do, we, how do we engage in that battle? How do we engage the enemy? How do, you, how do you kind of do spiritual warfare? How do you take what's written here in Ephesians 6 and connect it to maybe our everyday lives where, I don't know, Jeff, to be honest, maybe it doesn't feel like a battle in certain areas. Like that seems really hyperbolic and exaggerated. I don't, I don't know how to make sense of this. How, how does this connect to real life? Paul very clearly wants to make sure every Christian who's reading this letter understands that they are moving into a lifelong commitment to be a soldier for Jesus. And this is meant to have very practical ramifications for our lives. So when we come to the question of how do we do this spiritual warfare, what does that look like? I want to try and spend some time today dispelling a lot of I don't know what to call them other than kind of theological urban myths or legends and stuff. Um, how, ma- how, many, how many people here would say, just by a show of hands, you've done at some point in your life a pretty deep dive into all things spiritual warfare? So not a huge amount, but man, there is a lot out there. There are specific books and teachings, hundreds of pages long, series of uh, resources that are designed to help you do spiritual warfare effectively, to live into this vision in Ephesians 6. I, to be honest, I haven't kind of gone down that rabbit hole in a long time. So it's really good for me to be revisiting it as part of the Ephesians series. So I kind of did a quick Google search. And I just Googled spiritual warfare strategies. And again, I didn't, I didn't go to like page 8 on the Google search results. I just looked at resources that first came up. I wasn't even evaluating their legitimacy or not theologically. Just saying, hey, what would come up if someone's like, I want to be engaged in spiritual warfare. I want to honor God. I want to figure out how to do this. Here are four things that I found that I thought were really uh, funny and spoiler alert, kind of nonsensical but this is this is what will come up when you're like how do how do I do this spiritual warfare thing so there was a whole video series dedicated to understanding how when you're going into and through spiritual warfare you have to engage in full body prayer so just praying with your words that's insufficient you've got to bring your entire body to bear on it so you have to do certain movements you have to sing you have to shout You have to position yourself literally physically in ways that will help release God's power into your life. Another resource talked about spiritual warfare. It's useless for you to do spiritual warfare unless you understand how to release the anointing of God's power into your life. And there's a number of uh, examples that were shared, but uh, one of them was how you can do spiritual warfare on behalf of people who are in the hospital and who are sick. And the way you do that is you take candy and you pray over the candy and release God's power and anointing and the prayers against any demonic forces of sickness on the candy. And then you make sure the candy gets to that person in the hospital so that when they open the wrapper and eat the candy, they kind of catch that anointing. It sticks to them. Another talked about a pastor who prayed over his tires so that wherever he drove, he would be engaging in spiritual warfare over the enemy. And he said, God gave me a vision where when I was driving, it was just like flames behind the the tires. And God's anointing power was being released. And that's how he, it was one of the techniques that he encouraged people to engage in in terms of spiritual warfare. Other people talked about praise and worship, having praise and worship music on continually in your home Sounds not like a bad idea. The reasoning, though, is interesting. It's because when you play praise and music and worship music in your home, it opens particular portals in heaven that allow God's power to kind of interact with you and in your life. So the idea is, is that those portals are normally shut until you fire up your iPhone, then They get open, but they're only open while the music's playing, right? So you want to have it on a continual loop, even when you're sleeping, to be listening and having that music in your ear so you're not shutting out the portal. Or one of the other techniques, uh, because Satan is the prince of darkness uh, and, and the ruler over this dark age, it's not just about praying during times where you feel spiritually attacked, you're going through hard times. It's also about praying during spiritually strategic times, Because Satan is the prince of darkness, so the theory goes, he's more active during the evening when it's dark. So his activity is limited during the daytime when it's light. So you don't need to pray as much during the daytime, but when it gets dark, you do need to amp up your prayer. Now I want you to notice something about these page one Google searches. There is kind of a kernel of biblical wisdom in all of them, something tethered tangentially to prayer or praise and worship or praying with our whole selves before God. None of those things are bad and I would commend all of those in principle. But a lot of this spiritual warfare stuff veers very close to superstitionism, to a basic kind of Christian superstitionism I need to say these particular words at this time of day, spinning around in three circles, wearing certain things with certain music playing, and that's what will get the demons, or that's what will come against. That's how I'll stand firm. How do I stand firm? How do I do spiritual warfare? I engage in these really esoteric, strange behaviors that aren't normally part of my Christian life, but they are a part of my Christian life when I'm going through really difficult, hard times. I want you to hold some of those techniques, some of those strategies in your mind's eye as we look at what God's Word says. Because it's very important to evaluate what you hear, whether it's me saying it, another prominent Bible teacher, page on the internet, we measure that against the Word of God. And specifically, we definitely want to measure it against the actual passages that some of these practices are based on To say are these proper applications of this passage so let's work through this passage very quickly but in a very basic way and compare and contrast what's going on so in verses 14 to 17 Paul uses the picture the analogy of a Roman soldier soldier armored up to say this is one way of thinking about your life as a community but certainly as individuals as, as a Christian you are like a soldier now serving King Jesus And there are certain pieces of armor that you have to wear, you have to put on. So he says, stand firm then, the inference, like a soldier ready for battle with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now I'm going to give you just, just give you some instructions right out of the gate. Just circle or underline the word truth and righteousness. Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, sanctify them, meaning his disciples, by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says the Bible is God's truth, but who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. Righteousness is a word that, um, depending on the context, it can kind of veer into different um, implications of the translations. Uh, it's, it's a word, diakosun, that can mean righteousness or justice, depending on uh, where it falls linguistically. In, in, in a particular passage, but that's a fancy way of saying it refers to living rightly before God and rightly before other people. So I, I do my best to live a righteous life before God and I live a just life towards my neighbor. So righteousness just means living a life that God says is good and right before him and before other people. Verse 15, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Just circle readiness and gospel. Paul says, I want you to be in a state of readiness, a kind of mild urgency, like a soldier who knows a battle's coming. Be ready to engage through the gospel of peace. The gospel's a big loaded word. It has a lot of dimensions to it. It's kind of like a diamond that it's very hard. You can turn it over a a number of ways. It's really hard to describe the beauty of the diamond all in one go. You have to say, well, if you look at it this way, it's really beautiful in this way, and then over here, oh, that's that's really awesome too, and And the gospel is a big word like that, but it centrally means the good news of what God has done for us in and through Jesus, Jesus coming in his incarnation, dying on the cross and resurrecting, and now eliminating the barrier between God and man to have right relationship and to be reconciled to God and to bring that reconciliation and love and rescue into our relationships and the world. So it's the central bottom line of Christianity. He says, I want your feet to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to this, take up the shield of faith. Faith means act of trust. It's not referring to a reservoir of power that you hold within yourself, as if I have small faith, I have big faith today. My faith is like, it's like a phone battery. It's like 23% charge. So it's not as bad as it could be, but it, you know, I could use a charge up. Faith refers to my act of trust in obeying God. And then 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So salvation just refers to our deliverance, our rescue in Christ, what God has done for us. Paul talked about that in Ephesians. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not from works. You didn't earn your salvation through religious performance or moral striving or being a good person. It's been been gifted to you. And therefore the pressure's off. You can now live from a place of acceptance because because you didn't earn your way in, you can't unearn your way out. You're fully adopted and secure in your relationship in Christ. You are saved, past tense. Not, if you continue this way, hopefully God will save you in the future. No, 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 you have been saved. Now live out of that salvation. And then he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So prayer and alertness. He says, like, again, as a soldier You're just in a continual state of engagement in terms of God's purposes in and through your life. So if we go back to our question, how do we engage spiritual warfare? What does it mean to stand firm? How do you live a life so that after everything has been thrown at you, you can stay standing? What does Ephesians 6 verses 14 to 18, what gets emphasized there? What gets front-loaded there? Just throw out some of the words. Truth. Righteousness. Salvation. Faith. The Bible. Prayer. a Readiness to share the gospel, to understand the gospel and to share it. Yep, prayer. Now think of that list and compare it to some of those spiritual warfare strategies and techniques I referred to earlier. I don't want you to miss, I think, what is the central thrust of this passage. When Paul says, you're a Christian, life is warfare, you're to go in and fight the good fight, as it were, for Jesus in God's power, he's pointing them to what I would just call discipleship, just basic discipleship. Pray, read your Bible, share your faith with other people, learn to progressively trust God through obedience, live rightly before God, learn to amend your lives through confession or repentance. This is basic Christianity. This is what you would teach someone in the first 90 days of them giving their lives to Jesus. And that's important because it's really clear Paul is not talking about some advanced or esoteric or strange or weird or unique or um, kind of graduate level studies in how to engage the enemy as a Christian that's divorced from like regular Christianity. If I was summing up this passage, I would say the armor of God is discipleship. It's just learning to take your whole life and progressively live into faithful alignment with what God's word says. This isn't supposed to um, charge us with some kind of strange, weird, new family of rituals and practices. Paul says, understand that when you're doing the basic things of the Christian life, you are actually do something really important. And in one sense, there aren't any advanced studies in the Christian life. It's just faithful discipleship bringing God's glory and goodness to bear on your life in every dimension more and more. That's how you wage war. And I used to hear people talk about the armor of God and use it like a mantra. They're like, I get up in the morning and I put on the armor of God and I say, God, I'm putting on the helmet of salvation. I'm putting on the belt of truth. And they go through the whole thing like a mantra. I don't think that's necessarily bad to do, but that's not the point of the passage. Putting on or clothing yourself is that it's just repeated in the New Testament as a way of saying, live into these values. Make, grow in this way. Have this become more and more part of your life. Romans 13, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans again, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Put on the new self, Paul Wright wrote earlier in Ephesians. Colossians 3, over all these virtues that I've listed, put on love. Putting on just means growing in the character of Jesus, allowing God to change our hearts and our wills and our imaginations and our activities so that we more and more reflect his holiness and his goodness and his love and his righteousness into the world. Putting on the whole armor of God means Studying your Bible, praying, confession, repentance, growing in trust, cultivating and maintaining an urgency to share the gospel with people around you in a way that is accessible and winsome. Praying on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. That's what spiritual warfare looks like. Now for some of you, you're like, oh, well that's kind of like, Basic, I don't know, I want something like sexy and special and super really interesting. When you're in war, it's the basic training that's gonna determine whether you live or die. Every time, every, every time. As a soldier, what you do is you stand in a continual state of readiness so that when you get engaged with the enemy, when you face resistance, your basic training kicks in. But imagine how foolish it would be for a soldier to enlist in the army, go through basic training, and the day basic training was over said, I get it, I've done that before, I can move on to other advanced stuff. And Maybe they do other advanced things, but then the enemy comes at them. and They don't have the physical strength, the cardiovascular strength, their body isn't tuned and ready to respond. They forget some of their hand-to-hand combat techniques. They forget how to reload their firearm quickly because they understood the basics to be like beneath them, unimportant, like level one. But I'm like like at a different tier of soldier now. That's not the way even special op forces think because they know that in war, your basic training is gonna be what determines whether you survive. So let that be an encouragement to everybody in this room because what that means is When you're doing regular faithful things for God, you are actually doing spiritual warfare. It might not feel like that when you sit down and do your devotions in the morning, and your devotions aren't focused on spiritual warfare. They're just going through a book of the Bible or a particular theme. But that act of opening up the Bible and praying is spiritual warfare. When you prioritize coming to church and not just attending, like sitting in a seat and like praising and worshiping God, exalting God publicly, connecting with other people around you, taking notes, engaging the message, that's spiritual warfare. When you take time to fast and focus on a particular opportunity, when you shut down your screens and spend 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes in prayer, that's spiritual warfare. When you intentionally modify your schedule so that you're not in a frenzied state and you can make sure that what matters most to you gets prioritized. That's spiritual warfare. When you prioritize memorizing scripture, when you share an aspect of your faith with a coworker or a friend, again not forcefully, not in a way that's rude, but when it comes naturally, That spiritual warfare. When you take time to uplift and encourage someone else, when you help your kids learn a little bit more about Jesus, when you identify a perpetual sin in your life and actually take the time to confess it to God, and to say, God, I want to turn away from it. And I begin to put things, you put things in your life to turn away from that sin. That's spiritual warfare. When you begin to curb spending habits so that you can give more money to God's purposes, that's spiritual warfare. When you work towards reconciliation with a family member or a friend or a coworker, that's spiritual warfare. When you seek to faithfully apply what you've heard in a Bible study or in a sermon, to your life that week. That is spiritual warfare. When you make a conscious decision to stop watching shows, which might not be particularly wrong or sinful maybe, but they don't enhance and fuel you forward into pursuing God's best for you, and you decide to just take a break from that for a while, that's spiritual warfare. Now those things, again, might seem very basic. That might seem very, very simple. But Paul wants the Ephesians church to know, it's like, no, th- those are hugely important. That's how you stand strong against general hardships in your life, but particularly against any spiritual force of evil which is trying to press against you and God's purposes in your life. The point of Ephesians 6, I think, is this, that engaging in spiritual warfare isn't something distinctive from regular Christian life. It's doing regular Christian life and doing it with intention. That's spiritual warfare. That's how you put on the armor of God. It's a continual act of living into these priorities. And what that means is you can't understand Christianity through the lens of like a cheap grace understanding. So to be a Christian is to like accept Jesus, get my punch ticket to heaven, and now I just kind of just generally try and be a good person. No, you don't enlist in the army and then say, so that's like, I'm in the army now, so I can kind of live however I want. No, you now are under the authority of a commanding officer. And although it might be difficult for you, now that you are, when he says jump, you don't think, eh, thanks for the suggestion. You ask how high. To claim Jesus as your Lord or your king or your savior is no small thing because you're not claiming you shouldn't be understanding it as, oh, he's like the Lord of my heart or like a little spiritual part of my soul somewhere. And the rest of my life, I guess I'm, in, I'm the Lord of my... I, no, no, he's Lord of everything. Your sexuality, your finances, how you go through your days, your schedule, all of those things. You're now a soldier enlisted in the Salvation Army And you're learning to live under the authority of Jesus. Now if we're all soldiers here, and the Bible says if you're a Christian, you are a soldier, then there are four degrees of combat readiness that are represented in this room. I'm going to go through them really quickly and just have a little takeaway for each of you. Because I think this is going to hit everybody in this room. The first state of combat readiness is those who find themselves in peacetime. You're a soldier, but generally speaking, as far as you can tell, life is, you're not engaged in a lot of battles. Life is pretty, pretty smooth. You're in a place of peace and relative spiritual, emotional, relational prosperity. You're in a peacetime, And what you might be tempted to do is to say, this is a really helpful sermon. I'm going to remember it the next time I encounter hardships. That's a bad idea. The best time to put on the armor is when you're not in battle. Something gets missed in the NIV that I think the ESV translation does a better job of emphasizing. Listen to verse 14 and 15 in the ESV, the English Standard Version. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and... As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. Notice those first three things, first three parts of the armor, are framed as past tense. Stand firm, having already put on these things. These have been gifted to us in Christ. We have to stand in these things. But I think there's a lesson here for those who would say, oh, this is a passage that I go to when I encounter hardship. Certainly should. But the point of the passage is to be in a continual state of readiness so that if things are in a particularly easy time right now you don't coast and that's often what i do in my life when things are generally pretty easy when circumstances are good i can coast my prayer life can lag the intensity of my bible study can wane my desire to invite other people to pray for me and help me my desire to press into rituals there just doesn't seem to be an external urgency And that's a dangerous place to be spiritually because where that can lead you to is the next state, which is you're in battle, but you're naked. And that is awkward on a lot of levels. (laughs) And for those of you who find yourself in the midst of a battle, you're in the thick of it, the arrows are flying, you're taking the hits, but if you're honest, you realize I have not been prioritizing any of these things that were talked about you got to start putting on the armor. But I'm going to warn you, it is much harder to put, start putting on the armor in the midst of warfare. Now again, still start doing it. But the idea that you're going to be able to hit the pause button and then take a few weeks to integrate all this stuff into your life and start reading the Bible again and praying and uh, fellowship and all this stuff, and then I'll hit the pause button again. No, back, re-engage the enemy enemy's not going to wait for you. And so, when we find ourselves in peacetime, get yourself ready by doing these habits and these disciplines like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. When you're in the battle and you realize, I have not been taking righteousness seriously. I have not been pressing into God's truth. I have not been pressing into prayer. Don't give up. Start putting on the armor. Ask for God's help. But recognize the next time God brings you through that battle and it's peacetime, don't, don't go back to coasting. Keep the armor on. Keep putting on the armor of God. For those of you who are half-armored, follow the passage all the way down. Put on the whole armor of God, Paul says. Don't just see this as like optional. I'm a soldier. I'm going into battle. I'm pretty confident if I just bring a shield and greaves, I'll I'll be fine. Paul's point is that you need all of this. We need all of this as a community, as individuals. In your marriage, you need all of these things in order to stand firm. What have been the pieces of the armor of God that you've been neglecting, right? What have been pieces that you've deemed unnecessary or too inconvenient for your life right now? If you're in the battle and you're half armored, you're still in a very vulnerable place. And so I would encourage you to get real with God and to get real with a Christian mentor in your life and say, this is an area that I've just been completely neglecting for different reasons. I need to stop neglecting and I need to Can you help me get on track here? Can you help me put on this piece of the armor? And lastly, there's those who are fully armored and are standing firm. And I bet you there are some people within our community, not from a place of arrogance or trying to um, brag spiritually, but they would say, honestly, I really feel like I am standing firm because I've been diligent to put on the full armor of God. And if that's you, what I would say is, can you please help the rest of us? Like honestly, please help us. Come alongside other people that you see are struggling and just gently ask if you can pray for us. Send a note of encouragement. You don't have to posture like you've got it all together and you're gonna host a seminar on Thursday night about putting on the whole armor of God. It's not about that. It's about saying if you are standing firm then look for the soldiers around you who are struggling and help them up. Help them put on armor. We need your example. We need your wisdom born of experience. We need you to not say, oh, I'm armored up. I'm good. Sweet. And the rest of us are falling around you and you're like, well, I feel kind of bad for them. Sucks to be them. Awkward. But I'm doing good. It's like, no. If God has brought you to a place of thriving in him because you've aligned your life to his priorities and values and and, and, um, aligned yourself to the gospel, share some of that wisdom with other people. At least be praying for us. Put on the whole armor of God. Study and apply God's word. Live into God's righteousness. Grow in faith. Continue an act of trust as you obey God in areas big and small. And meditate on your salvation and your standing in Christ. What you have in Christ as a gift. Paul says, church, the Christian life is war. But in Jesus, you have all the resources that you need to stand firm. So stand firm in him. Let's pray. God, teaches us to f- stand firm. And I pray for those of us who are in the battle.